Public Radio KMXT is supported by a grant from North Pacific Fuel, serving and continuing the tradition of excellent service to the community at three locations, Marine Dock at 715 Shelikoff Street, Gas and Go at the Y, and Gas and Go at Mill Bay. It's 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT, broadcasting on 100.1 FM. It's your public radio station. Our studios are up here on Signal Hill in Kodiak, Alaska, where it's currently a balmy 59 degrees. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration plans to end combat operations in Iraq later this year. But while the mission is changing, U.S. troops won't be leaving. NPR's Michelle Kellerman explains. The U.S. has about 2,500 troops in Iraq, and by the end of the year, they will be part of a train-and-assist mission, not in combat. That's according to President Biden, who hosted Iraq's prime minister at the White House. Our shared fight against ISIS is critical for the stability of the region and our counterterrorism cooperation uh, will continue even as we shift to this new phase we're going to be talking about. Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khadami is under political pressure at home to get foreign forces out, though he wants U.S. intelligence, training and other support. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. During the joint appearance, Biden announced a new COVID-19 vaccination mandate at one federal agency. Veteran Affairs is going to, in fact, require that all docs working in that and facilities are going to have to be vaccinated. Earlier today, the White House endorsed calls from dozens of medical organizations that want to see a vaccination mandate extended to all health care workers. The White House is doubling down in other ways as it tries to reverse the surge in new infections, which have doubled over the last couple of weeks. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the U.S. is keeping its restrictions on international travel. After a high-level White House meeting on Friday, the Biden administration has determined now is not the time to lift restrictions on travel from Europe, the UK, China, India, and Brazil. Press Secretary Jen Psaki attributed the decision to the more transmissible Delta variant spreading around the U.S. and the globe. COVID cases are expected to continue to rise here in the U.S. due to the variant, especially in areas with low vaccination rates. Families separated from loved ones by the restrictions and the U.S. travel industry, which is taking a hit because of a lack of international tourism, have criticized the administration for keeping the travel bans in place. Tamara Keith, NPR News. California and New York City say they will require government workers to get vaccinated or regularly tested for coronavirus. In the U.S. fight to end its coronavirus outbreak, there's a lot riding on 30 percent. That's 30 percent of all adults who've yet to get a COVID-19 shot that could protect them from getting seriously ill and keep the more aggressive Delta variant of the virus from spreading as fast as it is now. The Associated Press reports authorities have identified the final victim of the partially collapsed condo building in Surfside, Florida. It cites a relative of a 54-year-old man. In all, 98 people have been confirmed dead as a result of the building's collapse last month. On Friday, rescuers concluded their month-long operation to recover victims from the rubble. You're listening to NPR News. 
NPR News es presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. Kodiak Area Emergency Operations Center has reported seven new COVID-19 cases today for the Kodiak Island Borough. Among them were two travel-related cases, one close contact case, and four community transmission cases. This brings the total active case count to 42, less than the 44 active cases reported on Friday. Total cases since the start of the pandemic are 1,191 in the Kodiak Island Borough. There have been 50 hospitalizations to date. There are no hospitalizations currently due to COVID-19, and there have been five deaths to date locally due to COVID-19. Kelly Chewbacca is campaigning to unseat U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, and she is pitching herself as the rightful Republican in the race. Chewbacca has the backing of the state party and of former President Trump, but as Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports, campaign finance reports show Murkowski still has a comfortable spot in the Republican fold. The primary election is more than a year from now, and it'll be conducted under new rules that largely ignore a candidate's party affiliation. But Chewbacca says she's already the Republican Party's chosen candidate. With these two moves of the Republican Party to censure Lisa Murkowski and then to endorse me for the U.S. Senate race, it was like the Republican Party took the party primary process into their own hands. But Murkowski still has powerful Republican support outside the state. Murkowski's fundraising report for the second quarter shows a pair of $5,000 contributions from Bluegrass PAC. That's the political action committee of the Senate's top Republican, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The National Republican Senatorial Committee is supporting Murkowski, too. CNN's Ted Barrett asked McConnell about it this spring. Can I ask you, will the NRSC support Lisa Murkowski uh, despite President Trump saying that uh, they should get rid of all of these Republicans who voted against him on impeachment? Yeah, absolutely. An NRSC spokesman affirmed that the committee will support all Republican senators, including Murkowski, in her primary race. Murkowski has not yet launched an official re-election campaign, but her fundraising suggests she will. She's raised $1.5 million this year, double Chewbacca's tally. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin. Alaskans will soon have a way to weigh in with what changes to state taxes, services, or permanent fund dividends they would like to see in the long term. A working group of legislators has been meeting to consider ways to close the gap between what the state spends and what it brings in. The group plans to hear public testimony over four days beginning next week. That would be this week. The first round of public testimony will be in Anchorage on Thursday, July 29th between 6 and 9 p.m. The second will be in the Matsu Borough on the 30th between 6 and 9. The third will be in Fairbanks on the 31st between 1 to 4 and the last will be in Juneau on August 2nd between 6 to 9. Residents who can't attend the hearings can call in to provide testimony on August 2nd. The specific locations for the hearings were still being finalized as of Thursday afternoon. As part of the deal that prevented state government's shutdown, the House agreed to launch the working group. Its goal is to recommend changes for the next special session, 
That special session is scheduled to start on August 2nd, the last day of public testimony. So August 2nd will be when you will be able to provide public testimony on the phone. Kensington Mine is running out of room to store its tailings. The U.S. Forest Service recently approved its plan to expand its gold mine that's about 45 miles northwest of Juneau. But federal scientists have urged alternatives to stockpiling millions of tons of liquid mine waste they say pose a long-term threat to fisheries around Burners Bay. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick has this report. The mine produces gold concentrate, so all that leftover rock has to go somewhere, and the mining company says it'll be out of space in a few years. The way Kensington disposes its mine waste makes it somewhat unique in this country. Thanks to a favorable decision in 2009 by the U.S. Supreme Court, the Chicago-based mine company was allowed to convert a natural lake into a tailings pond. There's an 88-foot dam in place now to hold back about 4 million tons of liquid mine waste that contains heavy metals from the ore. This tailing treatment facility, formerly known as Lower Slate Lake, lies upstream from Burners Bay, which makes conservationists and some federal regulators nervous should it ever fail. NOAA scientist Sean Egan has helped write letters to the Forest Service, raising his agency's concerns. When you raise a dam by 36 feet um, and add another 4 million cubic yards of material, the chance of that dam failing increases. Um, and should it increase, the tailings will spill out more broadly into Burners Bay. The U.S. Forest Service recently greenlit the mine's expansion, and that would increase the tailing treatment facility's capacity to 8.5 million tons of liquid tailings. It's working through the environmental review to get its permits, and federal law required the Forest Service to consult with NOAA fisheries scientists. The Forest Service declined an interview request, but it released a statement saying Kensington's mining operations plan must produce water quality and aquatic habitats by minimizing erosion and preventing tailings or waste from contaminating water bodies or other areas. Now, NOAA Fisheries' role is advisory, but it's asked the Forest Service to consider alternatives. It says Kensington should instead filter out the water from its tailings so they'd be stored in a more solid form. NOAA Fisheries' Molly Zaleski says filtered tailings are already being done in the region's other major mine. And that's something that we already have at Greens Creek Mine, so we knew that that's something that can be done in Southeast Alaska. Kensington's engineers and consultants say they looked into it. Just because it works at, at one operation in, in one area in Southeast Alaska doesn't mean it's going to work in another. Mark Kiesling is the mine's general manager in Juneau. That amount of precipitation and the amount of snowfall we get basically makes it difficult to handle filter tailings. The whole concept behind filter tailings is you remove the water from the tailings and that allows you to stack it up. And if you add the water back in and in precipitation, it makes it almost impossible to, to stack it up. And you can see where that might create a, a bit of a, a, a muddy, soupy mess. It's not a direction the Forest Service is pushing for either. And that was laid out in its July record of decision, which gave provisional support to raising the dam to a total height of 124 feet, easily the largest tailings dam in southeast Alaska. The Forest Service's own analysis has suggested that whether Kensington's mine waste is liquid or solid, it presents an equal danger, which it characterized as very low risk. But those in the know say that's oversimplification. The failure mechanisms on those two different structures would be different, so the probabilities of those failures would be different. That's Charlie Cobb, head of Alaska's dam safety program. In his technical comments to the Forest Service, he says equating risks as basically equal 
doesn't measure up. And the consequences of those failures would be different. So um, rather than being subjective about it, it, it would be better, at least if they had some relative comparison that said one might be higher or lower or the consequences might be different. To be clear, none of the federal agencies are suggesting Kensington Mines Dam is an immediate threat to Lynn Canal. Here's NOAA Fisheries' Sean Egan again. We do not feel that this dam is likely to fail in the next 10 years while the mine is operating. Um, we're not even suggesting the next 20 years or 30 years. It's more a process of the dam will be there for a very, very long time. Engineers are like lawyers. They don't like to toss around words like forever or perpetuity. Cobb says a dam's service life depends on its maintenance and care. Uh, it's not that you can't design for something for a very long time frame, but you do have to provide for the uh, resources necessary to inspect and monitor that dam and do maintenance on it um, for an uh, indefinite period of time. The expansion plan has generated a lot of interest. More than 400 comment letters from Alaskans and organizations expressing a mixture of support as an economic engine or as an ecological threat. A formal objection period expires August 23rd, but barring a major challenge, the Forest Service's decision becomes binding and Kensington will be able to expand its operations and stay in business through at least 2033. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. 17-year-old Lydia Jacoby from Seward cruised through her Olympic semifinal, winning her heat and posting the third fastest time of the day in the women's 100-meter breaststroke on Monday, which was Sunday for us here in Alaska. Jacoby will compete in the women's final on Tuesday in Tokyo. That's Monday for us tonight, just after 6 p.m. Alaska time. Jacoby swam slightly slower in her semifinal than in her quarterfinal, which she also won. In the final, she'll face world record holder and American and fellow American Lily King. She'll also face South Africa's Tatjana Schoonmaker, who set an Olympic record in the quarterfinals. Fly fishing is in full swing in Bristol Bay. Guided groups flocked to the rivers and lakes this summer after a year-long pandemic hiatus. KDLG's Stephanie Matrick spoke to one guide who said that while there are plenty of tourists, the fish didn't show. John Janetian is the owner and lead guide at Alaska Wild River Fishing, which operates out of Dillingham. Janetian has guided group trips on the rivers surrounding the bay for seven years. He says this summer, the schedule has been packed. Yeah, so we are fully booked up for the season. Um, we have to turn away over a dozen people for this year and rebook some for next year. But lots of fishermen doesn't mean lots of fish. When Janetian led his first trip of the season in mid-July, he was surprised. Fishing last week was as slow as I've ever seen it on the refuge. And if we had operated the, the week prior, we would really have nothing to deal with besides resident species. So the fishing was tough from, you know, pretty much anyone's perspective. Janetian thinks the high water contributed to slower fishing, which seems unusual for this time of year. Really, the rivers are acting like they do in the middle of June. It feels like an, an earlier season fishery than the middle of July. Um, we don't have the same numbers of salmon and Dolly Varden char um, that are generally in the system. Lee Borden, Bristol Bay's sport fish biologist, says water levels have been high around the bay, which poses a unique challenge for anglers. High water sometimes can affect angler success in two ways. It can change the behavior of the fish in that they'll take refuge in different parts of the river than you would normally expect to find them. So it makes them a little harder to find. 
when the water is really high. And uh, it can also affect the way that uh, you fish them. So the way you present the gear to the fish gets altered because you're pushed up into the weeds. Borden also says the low king runs in the past few years are a concern. Out on the water, Genesian has seen fewer kings this season. We experienced very low numbers of kings last week, um, not even really targetable numbers in the river system. Um, so we are experiencing that, but generally you look at the previous runs and that will indicate what they'll be like in three to five years. So it is. it was a little bit surprising to me. In addition to high waters and low king counts, Genesian experienced yet another surprise. His group caught a silver on the fly, which is a little early in the summer. Genesian will take his second group of the season to fish on the Togiak River in the National Wildlife Refuge, about 80 miles west of Dillingham. Other trips on the books this summer will explore the good news in Canatoc Rivers. In Dillingham, I'm Stephanie Maltrich. There was another structure fire in the Two Rivers Pleasant Valley area near Fairbanks over the weekend. Alaska state troopers report that the Grange Hall burned early Saturday morning. Pleasant Valley Community Association board member Bob Sugden says the Grange Hall has seen minimal use in recent years but has a decades-long history. It was where you went to go voting. It was where the Boy Scouts met. It was where the Girl Scouts met. It's where weddings were held. Um, you know, for just a little bit of everything. Troopers say they are investigating the blaze, but have not said whether it was arson. It's the latest in a string of community building and residential fires, five of which are officially being investigated as arson. Sugden says the attacks, which began in May, are taking a toll on locals. People are getting very, very scared. Um, it's, it's really, really unfortunate. It's, it's aggravating. It's frustrating. I think all of us out here have had multiple nights where you don't sleep. That's area resident Michelle Ethan. She says the arson threat has changed the way people live. We don't leave the house. Like, that's really bad. We do take turns. Who's going to leave the house next? And everyone is like that out here. They're all on edge. Ethan says she's trying to stay focused on what's controllable and hosted a weekend meeting about starting a volunteer fire department. We talked about what it's going to take to create a volunteer fire department from scratch, that we would need volunteers not only for service, but to help form an organization, um, to look at finding a permanent home for the trucks and the gear and everything that happens, as well as the fundraising. Ethan credits others with thoroughly researching and exploring the idea and stresses it will take time to create a volunteer fire department. In the meantime, locals have equipped trucks and trailers with water tanks and pumps, and the Community Association Sugden says law enforcement is maintaining a strong presence. There are so many troopers and FBI agents out here right now. It's like it's like it's crazy. It is an ongoing investigation. They have increased the number of troopers involved. Sugden says there's also a community watch program and an over $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of whomever is responsible for the arson attacks. KMXT Local News is underwritten in part by GCI. GCI has adjusted store hours across the state to keep our customers and employees as safe as possible during this time. The most up-to-date store hours are available on GCI.com. 
This is Alaska Fish Radio. I'm Lainey Welch. Alaskans are wanted for high-paying maritime jobs. More after this. The Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute provides digital and print marketing materials to the Alaska seafood industry. Find thousands of stunning photos, high-quality video footage, and sales tools at alaskaseafood.org. Alaska fishermen displaced by the COVID pandemic are being recruited for merchant marine jobs aboard U.S. ships from tankers to towboats, cargo barges, crews, and research ships and more. The Seafarers International Union is calling for 300 apprentice workers. We're looking for able-bodied seamen, but in our world, they're called able seafarer deck because you have to have that qualification in order to sail internationally. Bart Rogers is assistant vice president at the Harry Lundberg School of Seamanship in Maryland that's been training mariners for the Seafarers Union for over 50 years. People with culinary experience also are wanted to be trained as chief cooks as well as apprentices and stewards. The training programs vary from several months to a year. There's no tuition for attending the school. There is incidental costs, but it would be very appealing to people who live in Alaska because, number one, they could sail in a safe environment and earn a very good wage, benefit, advanced training is guaranteed, and then they can go back home and spend the money they make. Mariners also can schedule trips to fit in a fishing season. Ketchikan-based Sealink has recruited and referred up to 600 Alaskans to maritime trades. Director Ralph Mursky. The reason for that is real simple. They make a lot of money in a short period of time, and they can still what they do what they want to do at home. Recruitment is now open nationally, and there also are options for veterans and native hires. Overall, Bart Rogers says Alaskans are at the top of their list. The reason for that is pretty simple. The people from Alaska come with a work ethic already. They've been working since they could stand up, and that's why they're so good. Rogers adds that women make some of the best maritime workers. Don't get me wrong, but the women are smarter and work harder than the men all day long. Learn more at MyMaritimeCareer.org and find links at AlaskaFishRadio.com. Fish Radio is also brought to you by... OBI Seafoods in Kodiak. I'm Lainey Welch. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Hello, this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game in Kodiak with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement number 25, date issued July 25th at 10 a.m. There will be a 96-hour extension to the current commercial salmon fishing period from 9 p.m. Tuesday, July 27th until 9 p.m. Saturday, July 31st in the following areas. In the Outer Eye, Kulik, and Halibut Bay sections of the Southwest Kodiak District, and the Cape Alatak, Alatak Bay, Mosier Bay, and Olga Bay sections of the Alatak District. There will be an 81-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Wednesday, July 28th until 9 p.m. Saturday, July 31st in the following areas. In the northwest Kodiak District, except for the inner Uganic Bay section, will remain closed, and the southwest Afognak section of the Afognak District. There will be a 57-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Wednesday, July 28th, until 9 p.m. Friday, July 30th, in the following areas. In the Raspberry Strait, northwest Afognak, Shuyak Island, Pauls Bay, Paranosa Bay, northeast Afognak, Duck Bay, and southeast Afognak sections of the Afognak District. The Humpy Dead Man section of the Alatak District, the Northeast Kodiak District, except for the Buskin River section, remains closed. 
the east side Kodiak district and the mainland district, except for the inner Kukak Bay section, will remain closed. The seaward zones of the Alinchak Bay, Katmai, Dakovac Bay, Outer Kukak Bay, Hollow Bay, and Big River sections of the mainland district, and the seaward zones of the northwest of Fognac and Shuyak Island sections of the Fognac district remain closed to commercial salmon fishing. As previously announced, the outer Katoy Bay section of the Afognak District will open to commercial salmon fishing at noon, Saturday, July 25th, and remain open until further notice. The following areas remain open to commercial salmon fishing until further notice. The Ijuat Bay section of the Afognak District and the Spirit and Bay Special Harvest Area, also known as Telrod Cove. Until further notice, in that portion of the northwest and southwest Kodiak districts, south of a latitude of Cape Kuliak, king salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by Persane gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Other closed waters are shown in the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed commercial salmon fishing regulations and statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. And, of course, the most recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling the department's 24-hour recorder phone at 486-4559. Thank you very much. Good luck fishing. And this is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. Thank you, Mr. Fishing Game. Welcome to your Island Messenger for Monday. It is the 26th day of July, the year 2021. The sun rose today at 5.53. It will set again at 10.37. That will give us 16 hours and 45 minutes of daylight, a loss of 3 minutes and 57 seconds, almost 4 minutes compared to yesterday. Our record low for this date was 43, set in 2000 and 2012. Our record high was 80, set in 1966. And it's currently... Almost 60 degrees, 59 degrees, and we're looking for mostly cloudy skies today, although there are big chunks of blue off to my right there. Calm winds turning to the southeast to 5 later this afternoon. For tonight, areas of fog after 2 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy skies overnight, low of 52. And for tomorrow, that fog should burn off by about 11 a.m. and turn to mostly sunny skies, high near 63 tomorrow, mostly sunny skies on Wednesday too, with a high near 64. Looking at our local tides, here on the east side, we have a low tide coming up at 10.31. Oh no, strike that, at 5.01 p.m. That will be a high tide at 7.8 feet, followed by a low tide at 10.28 this evening of 1.6 feet. Our next high tide will be at 4.33 a.m. and be 9.2 feet, followed by a low tide at 11.08 a.m. tomorrow of minus one foot. Over on the west side, and this is Larson Bay, your high tide will be at 521 this afternoon and be 13.4 feet, followed by a low tide at 1114 this evening of 2.4 feet. Your high tide for tomorrow morning in the early hours will be at 502 a.m. and be 14.2 feet. And your low tide for tomorrow in the morning will be at 1140 a.m. and be minus 1.6 feet. Mariners, you have pretty nice weather most places. Marmot Island is Sitkanak, variable 10 right now, seas to 2 feet. For tomorrow, southwest 15, seas to 3 feet. Wednesday, southwest 15, seas to 3 feet. Thursday through Friday, variable 10, seas to 3 feet. Over in the Shelikoff, southwest 15 today, seas to 4 feet. Our areas of fog in the Shelikoff. Look for southwest 20 tomorrow. <coughs> Look for southwest 20 tomorrow, seas to 3 feet. Seas to 5 feet in the Shelikoff tomorrow. 
And for Wednesday, Southwest 20 sees a 5 feet in the Shillikoff. Thursday, Southwest 15 sees to 3 feet. And for Friday in the Shillikoff, Variable 10 sees to 3 feet. There is still time to sign up for the summer reading program. All ages are welcome to participate and earn prizes. Just use the online tool Beanstack to log your reading and get involved. Go to kodiak.beanstack.org. Other things going on at the library include the Kodiak Public Library's Community Beekeeping Project. That's happening tomorrow at 11 a.m. Call to reserve a spot outside with the beekeeper, or you can watch from inside behind the safety of the glass. For more information, contact the library at 486-8686. The Kodiak Arts Council and the Kodiak Island Borough School District are hosting a community conversation about the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium. They're planning its use and development for the future. That's happening Tuesday, July 27th, so that's tomorrow, 6 p.m., happening in the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium. All users and interested community members are invited to join them in the auditorium to learn more about the needs identified and to help envision solutions for this important community facility. Please bring your questions and ideas. For more information about this, call the Arts Council at 942-5840. But again, that's tomorrow night, 6 p.m., at the Gerald C., talking about the Gerald C. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT two times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. and during the Midday Report at 12.20. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181. Fax us at 486-2733 or email psa at kmxt.org. This portion of Spotlight is underwritten by Kodiak Athletic Club, where fitness is fun. Our circuit training classes are a combination of resistance and aerobic training. Kodiak Athletic Club, 486-8770. Remember our guarantee. If you don't like your new body, we will give you your old one back. Hi, you're rocking out Arizona Chris on KMXT. If you ain't ever took a ride around and cruise right through the heart of my town, anything you say would be. 